Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And I am super excited about my guest, Monica C. Parker, who I honestly, Monica, I didn't know you existed (laughs) until I heard you on Scott Barry Kaufman's Psychology Podcast. And I was like, whoa, I love this this whole concept and practice, and I I wonder if she'll agree. (laughs) And so you did, and here you are. I'm gonna read a little bio, and then I'd I'd like to frame it up because where people are so stressed out and so burned out and so worried and anxious, we need more wonder. So I'm a big fan. So I'll start by saying you are the author of this wonderful new book, The Power of Wonder, which I listened to on Audible, and uh, I, I wanted the hard copy as well. Uh, and it's a bestseller. You're a renowned speaker. You've been spending decades helping people discover how to lead and live wonderfully. You are the founder of a global human analytics and change consultancy called Hatch, whose clients include blue chip companies such as LinkedIn. And I just met, with, and not met, but I saw Reed Hoffman in a Brain Mind conference recently, who founded LinkedIn, mm-hmm. Google, Prudential, and Lego. And uh, you challenge corporate systems to advocate for more meaningful work lives. And in addition to your extensive advocacy work, you were an opera singer, a musician, a museum exhibition designer, a policy director, a homicide investigator defending death row inmates. Yay for social justice. Uh, You're a lover of the arts, literature, Mexican food, (laughs) and that you live all over the place, Atlanta, London, and Nice. And you love hanging out with friends, family, and live music. And if I may, for my listeners to really get them to immediately get your book and read it, I'm just going to read a little bit from the jacket because I think it frames this conversation. Um, it says, from the first tickle of curiosity to an unexpected shift in how we perceive the world, there isn't a person who hasn't experienced wonder. And yet the why and how of this profoundly beneficial emotion is only just beginning to be scientifically examined. This inspiring book by thought leader Monica C. Parker explores the power of wonder to transform the way we learn, develop new ideas, drive social change, build resiliency, and ultimately become better humans. Yay for that. The power of wonder takes readers, and this is what I love about the science uh, connection, uh, multidisciplinary journey through psychology, neuroscience, philosophy, literature, and business to share some of the surprising secrets behind the mechanics of wonder. And all I can say is I loved listening to your book, and then I'd like go on social media and I'd get so upset and then I'd listen to your book again. I was like, I need more Monica. I'm going to listen oh, to more. That's amazing. <laughs> so we, I really, I, I can't tell you enough that, um, you know, my work is freedom of mind. I say it's your mind. You should control it. And this is a frame to adopt yes. to be human 
and to not get into the dumps about mm. what's happening around us. So with that, thank you for your incredible book. I really appreciate it. I'm very touched that it uh, connected with you so much. I'm glad you found it. Well, I, I, I'm a lifelong learner, so I'm genuinely always interested in new perspectives. But this one, I had already interviewed Christy Nelson on gratefulness, which mm -hmm. I love as a practice. But you took it, this expands the model so much more and integrates it into corporate and work life. So tell, start by saying, um, you know, what motivated you to do this work? And sure. let's start there. So I guess it goes back to when I was a homicide investigator working with men and women on Florida's death row. And obviously that's that's grim work. And these men and women are have terrible pasts and grim futures. They're facing execution by the state. And I just found that there were certain people who still were able to, to be more re resilient, more buoyant. And I've been carrying that with me for the last 20 years, trying to understand that. And as I developed Hatch, which is a change management consultancy, I started noticing this pattern and realizing again that there were some people who were better able to deal with existential change, big change, than others. And I started to research it. And what I came up with is that it's people who hold their world in a great deal of wonder are able to yeah, deal with what life throws at them in just a more effective way. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so uh, please continue in terms of some of the things that are surprising, but also practical that people can start to realize, you know what? time for a mindset shift so that we can deal with all the stresses and problems of our world. Absolutely. People who are higher in the aggregate components of wonder um, are more generous. They're more humble. They're better listeners. They perform better in work and school. They have stronger relationships. Um, uh, they're more generous and uh, better community members. But mm -hmm. on top of that, what's particularly fascinating is some of the physiological benefits, which show that people who experience wonder have lower stress hormones, um, they have uh, lower um, heart rates, and they have lower pro-inflammatory cytokines. And of course, pro-inflammatory cytokines are the markers of certain diseases like Alzheimer's and um, heart disease, diabetes. So this shows a direct biological pathway between wonder and better health. Yes. So I've been teaching for years that for me, we are embodied minds. And so working with people in cults where they're taught that their bodies are evil and they shouldn't listen to their bodies, your frame is the opposite. It's really like we are our bodies. Yes. Bodies are us. So continue and, and talk about, so somebody's listening to this for the first time and they're like, well, what is, what is a wonder yeah. practice? So I'll first start about what is wonder and then I'll explain right. some of the practice. So wonder as a word is something of a shapeshifter, right? So we have wonder that's to wonder, which is the verb. And then we have wonder, a wonder, which would be the noun. And that might, the to wonder might be sort of curiosity and the a wonder might be something that triggers a sense of awe. And so my goal was to link those two concepts, and I believed that I could, and I did find the connecting points. And so the right. way I describe wonder is it starts with openness to experience, 
which is one of our big five personality traits. Everybody has some degree of openness. Then we move into curiosity, and it's a particular type of curiosity. It's what I call deep curiosity. So not sort of the, you know, Google search to settle a bet or smelling the milk to know if it's gone off. It's really the exploration for the joy of it. Then we move into absorption, and that could be, you know, a state that you find from meditation. It could be um, hyper-focus that you get in a flow state, but it could just be really paring back all of the extraneous noise and really paying attention. And then we may be rewarded with this sense of awe. And I call these different components watch, wander, whittle, wow, and woe. But the reason that I didn't just focus on awe is because I wanted people to realize that there's an on-ramp to this big bang, that all of these components of wonder have a benefit. And I actually call it a wonder cycle because each time you achieve or experience one of the components, you're more likely to in the future. And so it creates sort of this additive, upwardly beneficial spiral. Um, so that's sort of what it is. How can we create a mindset for it? Um, a couple of different ways. One is anything that we can do to manage attentional control. So we've got that chattering mind in the back of our head all the time and right. ways to quiet it. And that's what I call slow thought. So that could be meditation. That could be a gratitude practice. We've talked about that. Um, narrative journaling, um, even a wonder walk. Um, can help with that. And what makes a wonder walk a wonder walk? You decide it is. That's it. It's a beautiful example of priming um, that exactly. they took two groups of people. One went on a regular walk outside and the other, they said, one sentence prime, you will find something to feel a sense of wonder about. And the people who came back, the wonder walkers had benefits for the following week because they weren't thinking about other things. They were concentrating. They were present in that moment. And so those are just some of the ways you can achieve a, a wonder mindset. There's other elements as well um, around how we um, spend time with people, um, how we integrate ourselves into community. Um, prayer is another way, if that's, uh, if that's sort of the way that you connect with feeling small. And at the end of the day, that's really all we want is to feel like a small piece of a bigger system. And when we do that, it gives us that sense that there is so much more. And in that, that's the wonder. Yeah, it's... So there's so much to unpack in there and you listed the W's. Could you just take a minute and yep. flesh out each sure. one of those? Because it's so beautiful. So watch is openness to experience. And everyone has a little bit of openness to experience, some more than others. It's a personality trait. So it's set pretty much by the time we're 25, based half on our experiences and half on genetics. But I explain it as being open. And it's not just, it's a subtype of being open to experience. It's open to new ideas. And even more beneficial is if you can hold two competing ideas in your head at the same time. That's mm. sort of a paradoxical thinking. And what that does is it allows us to start to appreciate nuance. And it definitely helps us fight against polarization because we can look at an issue and know that it's not black and white. How do you pick a side when it's gray? You can't. And so recognizing that, you know, being open to new ideas and holding opposing ideas in your head at the same time, that's the watcher. Then yeah. we get into wander. And this is that type of deep curiosity, what some people might call epistemic curiosity, but there's a lot of different models of curiosity, probably six or seven, but they mm. tend to have different um, elements. And so I sort of reduce those down into surface curiosity 
and uh, deep curiosity. Surface, as I said, is like a Google search to settle a bet. It's the type we share with animals. But the deep curiosity, that's a purely human activity. And that is exploration for exploration's sake. And that's where we really start to um, become engaged. And actually, the heart of, of deep curiosity is, is empathy. Because empathy, in fact, is just deep curiosity about the human condition. And so if you're deeply curious, it automatically starts to make you more empathetic. Then we move into absorption. And absorption is sort of an interesting state. Some of the first tests for absorption actually were looking at people who were more um, prone to hypnosis, in fact. But what we're looking at is a type of absorption where you're really able to focus. And why is this important? Because if we pay too much attention to the noise that is in the world, we'll just miss the wonder. I mean, it'll just get lost in you know our day to day. And if we're stressed and we're pressured, our neural pathways are very fast and they will just scoot right down your brain and miss any opportunity for wonder. So that absorption phase really prepares you and it's sort of the on-ramp then into the last um, uh, two phases. So that's the watch wander, that's whittle and that's uh, pairing back the focus absorption. And then we get into wow and woe. And the reason that awe has um, two Ws is because really awe has sort of two phases. So the first is where you experience something that feels so vast that you feel like a smaller part. And that can be emotionally vast, like seeing your kid take their first steps. It can be cognitively vast, like, you know, imagining a folded universe. Um, and it can be naturally vast, like seeing the Grand Canyon. And that makes you feel small. That's the wow, where you go, <gasps> sort of take a breath in. But then the second phase is the most powerful that's where your mind actually starts to change. You become plastic in your mind and new thinking can be implanted in that state. And in mm -hmm. that state, we call that assimilation. And that's the whoa, mind blown. And then, of right. course, that makes you more open, which makes you more curious. And so it keeps going on and on. But those are the five W's. Yeah, that's great. And of course, in my work with the influence continuum and the bite model, I say, be careful if you're in that open state. Correct. If someone has an agenda to put a conspiracy theory in your brain, your 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 frontal cortex is not blocking that and protecting you from that. It's so true, and it's sort of almost a, a bit counterintuitive because there are elements of wonder that make you able to um, to have better reasoning. Um, but the challenge is, is that if you get into a full awe state really anything can be implanted in that. There's been some people that have said, you know, what's the dark side? And I do see cults as the potential dark side. And then the, on the other side, people say, oh, you know, if we could get all the terrorists to just experience wonder, then life would be better. No, it doesn't work that way. Right. And so it's recognizing that, you know, in that plastic state, it depends on what you can implant. But um, yes, it's it's to to really appreciate what it is you want to implant in that state. Right. And I'll just add that for me, developmental psychology, uh, growing up to be an adult, where we're headed, ideally, if we're growing well, is to be able to hold our own belief system, but entertain many other belief systems and, and step into those worlds without losing our groundedness. Mm. Yet, when you know, like when I was recruited into the Moonies, I feel like my developmental stage went down to a very childish, all mm. or nothing, black and white, us versus them thinking, which is what I think cult members wind up being. 
Absolutely. Cults have no nuance. It is you're in, you're out, right? And that's one of the challenges. And that's where openness becomes really powerful. That ability to be open to new ideas, you are not open to new ideas by the very nature of a cult. And so that I think is one of those really important pieces to start to understand, given that it is a personality trait. Of course, we can't change it a lot. We can change it a little but there are ways that we can mitigate it, that we can support it. And again, one of those great ways to do that is to force yourself to feel competing ideas, to discuss them. I get asked, you know, what do we do for our kids if our school systems are creating, making them too polarized, which I genuinely believe. I believe that school systems, because they're testing to memorization and standardization, they're teaching children that there is a single right answer to every question. So they grow up to be adults that believe there's a single right answer to every question. So debate with your kids at the dinner table, right? Come back with a, a contrary point, just to be a little contrary and to see how they they confront that and to help them start to see the nuance that exists in the world. And I think that's one of the key components. Yeah, it's beautiful. But you are also saying, and you advocate this strongly, uh, is like being online in virtual reality or avatars is so not the human experience that's necessary to have wonder and awe. Can you talk about in real life and nature? Well, so there's certainly, nature gives us, you know, myriad of benefits. It's called the green advantage. We know um, from research around forest walking um, and uh, the some of these advantages around kids who have ADD and how it helps with their focus. So we know that being in the physical, natural environment is helpful. Um, and it can be as short as, you know, 20 minutes. Um, but One of the challenges with the online experience is the jury is still out if we even feel empathy. You know, empathy is based on uh, mirror neurons, they believe, and do our mirror neurons triggered when we're seeing pixels of a person? We don't really know that. And one of the challenges is we all, but what we do know is that empathy levels have dropped almost 50% in the last 20 years. And the belief around that is because of this onslaught of information, we just start to dehumanize each other because it's the only way that we can deal with the enormity of, of what we're being thrown, you know, what we're Mm. consuming, um, frankly. And so absolutely, I advocate for the internet can be an incredible wonder tool, but it has to be used really well. It has to be well curated. Um, And so recognizing, again, what are you consuming? Because that is going to be the mulch, the the basis upon which you grow these other elements. And if it's junk, you know, junk in, junk out. And so I believe that Mm. it's it's a, the way it's being used right now is is harmful. I don't believe as a tool itself it's harmful necessarily, but it's not being used um, by and large in the best way that it could be. Right. And part of, I think, what people need to always remember is what is the source of this information that I'm consuming or this these videos that I'm consuming Because in my work, I've studied psychological warfare Mm. that is designed to make people confused and disoriented, attack science, attack experts, to attack institutions of checks and balances. And so we, we really need to become better consumers and really protect our minds so that we can stay anchored to our bodies. Mm. 
And and um, and that's part I, of what I see as what we need to incorporate is this discernment piece along with uh, these states of, of wonder and such. And I guess I just want to say personally, Monica, um, scuba diving for me is my temple. It, it, yeah, it I've gets done it. Me, it is amazing. It is, yes. And, and it just makes you bre- hear your breathing. You're in an immersive and new environment. And the it's spectac- a little scary. Yes. Which yep. is part of the sort of, we want to push the scary bit out, but that's really a key component to wonder is allowing there to be that little bit of that duly valenced emotion. So, yes. Yep. So give give some other examples uh, you you do in your book beautifully of ways that people sure. experience wonder. I call them wonder bringers, and so wonder bringers are very personal. But there are some that are um, that are they're quite universal. So music is a wonder bringer. Um, what type of music you know depends on what you like, but they find that um, it's elements that have a, a great deal of modulation. You know when we move from uh, uh, absorption into awe. There's a moment called an expectation violation. And this is where a pattern we think is going to complete is shifted. It's something we didn't expect to see. And you can almost mimic that in music where it's, you know, one type of, you know, very quiet and then a big modulation. So that is just sort of creating an expectation violation. Again, being in nature, anything that um, makes you feel small. So that could be, you know, big vistas, mountains, the sea. But if you can't go small, then then you look at things that are small, right? So you you notice the little details that you might have missed otherwise. Cognitively, um, we know that um, sharing big ideas with one another, and sometimes that can be in the context of... um, of learning, sometimes that could be in the context of of religion, but again, something where you're allowing yourself to sort of challenge it. Um, Architecture, big wonder bringer, art, another one. Um, And I would argue that art is not just things that are on the wall. Art is anything, I think Tolstoy's definition was anything that evokes emotion. Um, Mm. And so recognizing that there, there is so much wonder in the world. It's almost hard to say what couldn't potentially be a wonder bringer. But one of the benefits is if you start to understand what I call sort of your wonder archetype, which is, you know, do you lean more towards natural? Do you lean more towards cognitive? And I had a really right. interesting conversation with a guy who said, you know, my wife loves to go on hikes. And I always thought that maybe, you know, she got this <gasps> big sense. And I thought maybe she was a little, you know, it was just a little stupid because I I get it from the big ideas. And I thought, doesn't she get it from the big ideas? That's like intellectual. But when I described the awe archetype, he said, oh, wait a minute. That is actually, that's primal to her. It can't be changed. And this is primal to me. And so I think it, when you start to appreciate what it is that brings it to you, social, cognitive, natural, then you can start to seek it um, and understand your wonder bringers for yourself. Right. So I want to come back for my listeners. I mean, we're t- you're 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 so brilliant, and you're putting out so many uh, essential ideas in a very short period of time. I really want to encourage people to take the time, and I would recommend listening because you read the book, listening to the book, pausing it, and reflecting it. How can I add this to my life? 
And what you said about priming in social psychology, we call it framing, like Robert Cialdini wrote a mm -hmm. book, Presuasion, uh, after his most famous book, Influence, and just how incredibly important it is for us to prime or to frame and go, I'm going to take a walk and I, I want to see things that I had never even noticed before. And then all of a sudden, outside my own door, I'm seeing bushes and mm. how they grow. I have a 200-year-old uh, tree in our front yard and just really being with the tree and noticing it in a profound way. And it just, it just calms me and it just makes me feel so present. Mm, and that is, you're so present and you really touched on another one of the sort of primary ways that we see, that we uh, experience wonder and that's novelty, right? Our brain notices newness. In fact, it's really pretty much all it notices. And that's why, you know, if someone were to ask you, I don't know, to describe the wallpaper in a place that you've been a hundred times, you'd think, I, I don't really remember what the wallpaper is. Right. Um, so we want to really help our brains to see the newness. And as you say, that priming or framing really does because you're telling your brain, I want you to dedicate resources and it will do that. It'll dedicate cognitive resources to completing that task that you set uh, to it. So really that idea of, of novelty and looking through the world it, with a child's eyes, you know, the Zen precept of, um, of always be beginning or Rainer Maria Huerta says, um, you know, to, uh, to, as if it's always uh, to start as if we're always starting. So I, I, yeah. yeah. I, yeah, beginner's mind. Yeah. It's amazing. So you do so much work in the corporate world. So help my listeners have a sense of the kind of trainings you do or the kinds of consulting you sure. do. Um, so I do change management, which is, you know, we tend to try to do big existential change. So, you know, um, big moves or whole parts of the business that are, you know, going under um, consolidations, things like that. But the way that I'm using Wonder, and I have it sort of a subset of my consultancy called the Wonder Lab, and this is coming in and helping people through um, a different modules to understand how to bring wonder into their workplace in order to achieve all of these benefits. And, you know, I put up a slide when I do a wonder at work presentation, and it's about 50 different things, 50 different benefits that you can achieve from this. And so we really break it down into about six or eight modules and help um, people start to understand how to achieve that. Another one of the things that's really interesting that's come out of this is I'm being approached in marketing and in hospitality saying, how can I leverage wonder, you know, to um, to sell more or to get people to feel this sense of place attachment? And I'll be honest, I'm very careful about who I support with that. I don't want, I'm not, not going to be working for any tobacco companies or anything like that. Right. But um, Oil companies. Yeah, exactly. None of that. So really what I'm I'm hoping, I'm helping uh, organizations start to understand how they can evoke that sense of wonder and how it can make people then connect more deeply, in particular with social brands um, and in tourism experiences, hospitality experiences. And there's a benefit to that because we know that when someone feels a sense of wonder at a place, they develop what's known as place attachment. And so we can look at 
you know, the fundraising that was done for Lahaina, the terrible fire that occurred. And people mm. were giving tens of thousands of dollars to a restaurant that they went to twice, you know, because they felt a sense of stewardship. And so right. I want us to be able to create that for different areas because I believe then it will help us take better care of the world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I have a million other things running through <laughs> my mind. I can maybe take a minute and talk about creativity mm. and wonder. Yeah. Flesh that out a little bit more. Absolutely. So I, it really starts with that idea of being able to hold competing ideas in your head, that divergent thinking. We know that people that are divergent thinkers are able to connect the dots in a different way. Um, the other, the, the being curious, that element, um, if you are given the time and the space to be curious, and this is one of the challenges, um, there's a recent statistic I saw that said 70% 70, 70 of people, that's 70% of people in American corporates meet resistance when asking questions. So how in the world are we supposed to come up with innovative solutions if we're not even allowed to ask questions? And so asking questions is the heart of that sense of creativity. But I think where you really find it is that pairing back. And so being able to whittle away the distractions and start to see your, you know, whatever initiative or challenge that you're trying to tackle in this fundamentally different way through that wonder lens it's, it allows you, again, to connect the dots in a different way. And of course, there's research done about psychedelics. I'm not suggesting anyone takes those. Don't, I won't be invited back. But, um, but, but there, there, it is interesting to see at least what happens in the mind and in the brain during that process, because that like that's like a hyper wonder experience. So if you imagine the way that the default mode networks sort of quiets and that you're able to connect dots in a way you hadn't before, you know, the microcosm of that is just the wonder that we can create on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. So I um, have been speaking at American Psychiatric Association conventions and they have exhibit halls. And I was astounded how many presentations were about psychedelic therapeutic applications, mm. MDMA, psilocybin in particular, mm. and just how they're really getting amazing results where people have tried traditional uh, psychotherapy and even ECT, the yes. you know the the, the, yeah. the convulsive therapy, uh, electric shock stuff. And um, I was just recently at this brain mind summit and and a, a man was, presenting about his research. And he just talked about how the brain can have, I think he termed it canalization mm. canals, mm. where we have these, these roadways of patterns of how to experience reality. Mm. And that for in the proper setting with, you know, mental health professionals Correct. train, those canals can be kind of filled in with plasticity for, you know, that moment and new ideas can yes. then be introduced where people can now have different neuronal connections. And it's, so, you know, we're talking about people who are, have existential depression. You know, they know that they have a terminal illness and they have scarce years left and they just want to be able to enjoy them or people who have tried every conceivable, you know, uh, treatment for drug addiction and that the benefit of this, but you really touched on the key point. It's about having the set and setting 
um, right. about having um, it, it requires what's known as a heroic dose of psychedelics. So we're talking a big daddy dose and then the integration with mental health professionals. So I think that that combination is what allows it to be therapeutic. Of course, people are using it in a sense, recreationally as well in some places. When I interviewed um, Dr. David Nutt, who's one of the foremost researchers in this, he said, it's not really recreational though, it's exploratory. So he likes to use the term, which I also do, psychonaut, which was um, developed by Algis Huxley. But I mm. think that understanding the benefits of that it starts to help you appreciate what's happening in the brain while we're mm. in lesser states of wonder. Right. So if I may just say, you know, I got, I, I did my master's in, in counseling in 1985. And back then the belief was that you're, you're, you have a set number of neurons and, you know, there's no, there's no chance of growing new ones. So like we did not understand neuroplasticity mm. and neurogenesis. But even so, I was working with people born in mind control cults who didn't, they weren't allowed to grow and be themselves. So they had this rigid ideology and personality type that was kind of cloned into them. And now they're out and they're reading my books and they're like, Steve, you had an identity before the Moonies. I don't, what do I do? And all I could think of is say, create one, mm. uh, you know, look for models of the way you want to be, whether you get it from books or movies or people that you've now met and have a positive future orientation. And then with that as kind of a goal to create yourself, I was encouraging people to revisualize traumatic incidents of their past after they understand brainwashing and mind control um, and ask them to revisualize if they knew then what they know now, what would they have wanted to say mm. or do differently? And it's amazing how people are so immediately able to access and articulate, oh, I would have you know, walked out the door, or I would have told them to shove it. I would have called the police or whatever. And just to, to connect resources to their prior sense of self and help liberate their cult identity. Mm. And that's the, a, a big piece of my, my work, helping people to recover um, from all of these traumatic, you know, black and white, all or nothing authoritarian um, beliefs and practices that were in their head. So uh, just to connect a few dots yeah. for my listeners, because I have a and lot of and that's the members. curiosity. You know, if it if curiosity is the heart of empathy, of course, it's also the curiosity is the heart of of grace, uh, giving ourselves that sense. So the opportunity is to become deeply curious about yourself and what is it right. that you know? What are the qualities that I want to enhance? What are the qualities that I'm happy to leave behind? And to create a process whereby your your brain assists you in that. And of course, cool. you know, and and learn those mitigating elements and um, that can help even if you can't necessarily change your your personality wholly and completely that will help you make the best of what you have in your own noggin right so can you think back to some of the the, the people that you've been asked to consult with who may have been like really really stuck and and just share with our listeners you know some of the some of the strategies that you might use to help them to get unstuck? 
Sure. I mean, a lot of a lot of what we do is around um, questions and creating environments where questions are um, really encouraged, where curiosity is given the time. Um, mm. So we'll frequently go in and look at, you know, we'll look at a project and say, what's your typical timeline? And understand how when you compress timelines um, too tightly, that you're not allowing space for um, certain kinds of iteration, um, for looking for um, unconscious cues that they may create barriers in the process. We do a lot around action bias. So hmm. action bias being, you know, the idea that we respect leaders when they make decisive decisions, even if later we know it was a terrible decision, we still say that's a good leader because they were decisive. So we want to try to kill action bias. And that is really prevalent, especially in sort of high achieving organizations. This idea of, you know, move fast and break things. Move fast and break things doesn't really support wonder. And so it's about, no, you know, moving slow and taking the time. If you have time, use it. And right. so a lot of it is around that. Um, it's around finding a kernel and allowing that kernel to sort of expand. And then a lot of work, again, on how we can pare back the noise and do that both in a work environment and not. But of course, there's physical attributes we can build into the work environment as well. And I'll consult on those design elements as well that will help people um, get more quickly into that wonder state. Hmm. So that including architecture sure. or rooms? And, I'm, and so. I'm consulting with some architecture firms who are, um, who in some ways were already doing, who were creating wonder, but they didn't understand what was happening. So hmm. I'll give you an example, um, uh, and I, I put it in the book, don't I? I talk about Frank Lloyd Wright, one of the yes. greatest architects in American history. And he had this technique where he would put people in these tiny little hallways that you could almost touch the sides. And but the and you think this is not very accomplished for such a, a a good architect. But then those hallways would enter into these big cantilevered spaces. So that contrast, he called it compression and release. But what we want to try to do is create that sense of compression and release, that sense of contrast. Um, and there are certain elements, things like repetition, sanctity, ephemerality. These things will will also give you a sense of wonder. A biophilia, again, if you can't be out in nature, bringing elements of nature into a space, even with just curved hmm. lines, light, plant features, those, were, those are also things that will help you have a sense of wonder. Yeah, so many, so many uh, exemplars that you draw upon. So um, let me ask you in the future, what research would you like to see done and in, in terms of connecting the neuroscience mm. as we are learning more and more about the brain and the mind-brain body connection? Yeah, I think uh, I... I'm amazed at the number of hard scientists that I meet who will honestly just tell me, uh, you know, social science is not a science. So I would love for there to be more connectivity where we start to see not necessarily a quid pro quo, but where we see this real direct measurable impact of social science so that in the end, I don't believe we should have to harden soft science, but I think that that would help with some of its, um, you know, some of the, 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 the crisis that's happening in social science where the replicability and things like that. But um, also just personally, what I would love to see is more research and it may be what I tackle next around polarization. 
Um, mm. Because I think that it's at the heart of pretty much most of the issues we're having. We see it in wars. We see it on social networks. We see it in, um, in you know, voting patterns. And if we could sort of tackle that, understand it, and find some of the root causes, that I think would be really beneficial for humanity. Yeah, awesome. So I'm going to take the liberty of saying that I realized after 40 plus years of activism, nothing was really changing in my work about mind control cults and authoritarian mind controllers. And I got involved with a forensic think tank at Harvard Medical School, and I did a presentation. And one of the professors there said, you need to go get a doctorate and you need to do a quantitative study on your model and prove it has scientific you know, validity, to which I said, Michael, I'm 63, I'm too old. And he said, I'm 77. Do you want to change the law or don't you? And I'll supervise your research if you do this. So I did. And so I've now created a, a framework mm. scientifically. Now, BU professor just did a content validity study and and, and confirm my results that if you control people's behavior, information, thoughts, and emotions, you have the recipe of authoritarian control. So if you tell people, you know, if you lie to people to get them in, that's an element of authoritarianism, yeah. you know, that we need to be aware of. If you tell people there's no legitimate existence if you ever leave the group, that's, a, you know, phobia yeah. indoctrination. So... For those hard scientists, I actually have a model that's from behavioral science, uh, but we need a lot more We need a lot research. more. I wanted to get a PhD, and um, I was told in not so many words that I was, yeah, that I was too old, um, and that, um, you know, that I wouldn't be uh, enough of a supplicant to, uh, to the system. Um, so I wrote the book. And maybe yeah. maybe now that will uh, allow me, someone might say, okay, now now you can come and get a PhD. Uh, all I can say is it was one of the best decisions of my life because I really, my brain got better. I, my memory, my concentration, my writing ability, it was a lot of hard work, but, and now people are calling me doctor instead of, you know, ex-Mooney Steve, <laughs> I'm Dr. Hassan, and people are giving me respectability. And I, I too was like, I'm too old to do a doctorate, but trust me, you're brilliant. You can do this. Well, there are any advisors out there who, uh, who, who would like to talk to me about an, uh, a PhD, I, I'm, I'm open to it. Well, I, I, I was referred to Fielding Graduate University. It's based on Santa Barbara. They are largely online, but they get together twice a year for five days where you meet in person with the professors and they have incredible professors. So that would be where I would steer you and I'd be happy to introduce you to people. I, I love it. There. For me, this book is so valuable and important. And, and I'll just say the first day of my first orientation, one of the professors said, okay, Take the next half an hour and come back with your dissertation research topic line. And he, and he said, people do all the coursework and then they don't finish the dissertation. We're going to start with, what do you want to research? And pretty much they just pared it back and said, it's too broad. Yep. Make it narrow. Make it a study that's doable. 
and you have incredible access to real life examples in the corporate world. Mm. So, I mean, I was encouraged to do, I have the, 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 the um, diploma behind me. I was encouraged to do uh, the doctorate in organizational development and change mm. as opposed to clinical psychology because I wanted to change the law. And this is a, 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 a discipline around groups. That's interesting. And healthy organizations. So for me, that's that's the doctorate I would <laughs> advise you to to do. And it was a phenomenal thing. My mentor was a developmental psychologist, one of the top in the world, and uh, Judith Stevens Long, and she was wonderful. So. Well, you've gotten me excited about the potential again. Yeah, and and you know, I'm telling you, I just my mind got better. It, it, I just learned to think like an academic, and I already think you think like an academic, probably because you're interacting with so many of them that you are so bright and you pick that up. Um, so let me come back to. Um, well, one of the things you said was very interesting, and I think you said it in the book about how there's a decline in empathy. And my reaction is, wasn't there an increase in narcissism or this Ayn Rand ideology? Selfishness is good, you know, greed is good, and altruism is evil. Isn't there a social uh, programming yeah. element to this? They're absolutely, they are related. So when narcissism goes up, typically empathy does go down. We had a little bit of a boost of empathy during the beginning of COVID, but now it's dropped and it even lower than it was pre-COVID. Um, there's a couple of different reasons for that. Some, some theories are um, that we're getting sort of empathy burnout um, because we're just the onslaught of information that we're supposed to consume and then feel, you know, feel bad about because there's so much to feel bad about. So that's one of the challenges. Um, another that was, I thought was a very empathetic way to look at it is that um, the incoming generation is the first one that will not do better than their previous, than their parents. Um, and so there's almost economically. like a, mm, so there's mm -hmm. almost sort of like a, a nihilism where they say, you know, oh, well, screw it all. You know, I can't buy a, a, a house. Um, I'm going to be in student debt. I, I don't care about my job. And so there, it could be that there's societal elements that are sort of driving that sense of uh, low empathy. And absolutely, I do think that the individualism that is that is social media that we can just have an opinion about everything and then people can hear it is um, is not great because then we start right. to dehumanize these avatars and then the dehumanization, you don't just turn it off when you meet a real human. Um, right. And we also have to remember, I mean, think of all the, the suicides, there is a real human on the other side of that and remembering that as well. And so I think that it is a, definitely a complex set of challenges and, I, I don't know, but again, I feel like at the heart of it might be this polarization as well. You know, there's one mm. study that showed um, in the EU that 75% of people in this one country, I will not say because I don't want to further um, polarization, but 75% said they would not do business with somebody who was of an opposite political party. Wow. So, I mean, how do you build a strategy even based on that? That's fascinating. But then you start to appreciate if we're really de dehumanizing people that much, then it's easy to see how empathy will just start to bottom out. Right. 
And and active listening. I mean, one of the things I've been saying for the last seven, eight years in particular since Trump burst onto the political scene is um, don't look at th these people who follow him as and call them names and put them down and cut them off and block them, especially if they're friends or family members that you value. Keep the warm connection. You can even say, let's not talk politics, but I still want you in my life and get out of this all or nothingness because ultimately as people age and they're on their deathbed, they're reflecting on relationships, right? Not on, I should have worked more yes. hours. And I, I have a close family member who is, um, who has been a Trump supporter and um, and supportive of certain policies that almost sit confrontational to our family. We have immigrant spouses and living in different countries. Right. And, and yet that person doesn't see the connection between what they're saying and the love that they have for our family. And so right. I have chosen that, you know, you can't you can't choose new family, and I have chosen to give them grace, and we agree we don't talk politics. Yeah. And I just can't. It To me, if it allowed me to cut off my relationship with that person, then the polarization is won. Then exactly. That's that's their goal. They want to create those, those schisms, and I that won't let them. You know? Ex exactly. So uh, we're completely aligned on that one. It is so important. I'm curious if you've shared your book with the person who is a Trump I, I supporter. Have, and how I have. I have. And I don't, still don't think they see, I don't think they see themselves in the polarized world. I think, um, and some of it is age. You know, people tend to frequently get a, a bit more fearful as they age and fear is sort of contrary to openness. So I think that there's a lot of different things at, at play and, um, and, you know, it, it, it is what it is. Well, I, I, uh, I experiment as I see um, new documentaries coming out or podcasts or books. I experiment with my clients if I read something like your book. I, I'm going to recommend it to especially parents and friends who have a loved one, who, any type of cult, not just MAGA, to have a conversation and we find what fits mm. and, to, and to follow up on that. And I'll say that I'm going to plug uh, uh, Adam Grant's book, yep. uh, Think Again, and he has a new book about, I think it's uh, Unlocking Your Hidden Potential mm. that I'm just reading. It's fantastic. But the Think Again book, I just I, I would give to clients and and ask, uh, here could would you read this? Uh, I just finished. I love your opinion about this book. And it created the foundation for real listening and interactions that were very fruitful. Um, and so I think that's really, really valuable. And I just want to connect a dot, if I may, just with my work and your great work. And that is the notion that if you have certainty, you're only going to look for things that confirm confirmation Correct. bias, your beliefs. Mm -hmm. But if you have that uncertainty or that openness to other points of view and the scientific method is an exemplar of how mm. the human species has 
developed the way as advanced as we we have been in terms of technology and such you're 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 having a hypothesis you're testing it and you're exposing that hypothesis to a community and you're looking for evidence and you're happy to get rid of that hypothesis if a better one shows up mm. and that's how we can evolve and that's what we need is to realize we're not in the industrial age anymore. We're not even in the digital age anymore. We're now entering the AI digital age and we can't conceive. I mean, think back before smartphones, could we conceive no. of what's, what, what's happening now? I think with AI, we can't conceive of what the world will be like and in 20 today years. A child will have 18 jobs in six industries, a kid that graduates from high school today. It's only going to, you know, skyrocket. So it's not just about learning, it's about unlearning, right? That's the critical piece. Um, so, you know, what you're expressing is that ability to to challenge yourself so that you can unlearn what you knew before, which is very much, you know, deprogramming in a sense. Right. But I would just cite Adam Grant and other people that I learn from, and I love Scott Barry Kaufman's podcast. I listen to it regularly, but the, I, and, and Jordan Harbinger also talks about scaffolding skills. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the most valuable skills is to learn how to public speak, you know, go to Toastmasters, like to, to think about things as this is very, this is going to challenge my comfort system. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do it and not approach it with a perfectionism. I'm going to master it, but you know, I just want to grow. I want to grow my brain cells mm. and I want to expand my cultural horizons. And but that um, in and of itself is a wonder-based mindset. I mean, exactly. that is that's that that describes it perfectly. Yeah, wonderful, um, Monica. I, I, the power of wonder the extraordinary emotion that will change the way you live, learn, and lead. And all I can say is I hope it, it goes into every language on the planet, including China <laughs> and, um, you know, Russia, and uh, that people can realize, you know, we are, we need each other. We're interdependent species and we're connected to the planet, the earth needs us to take good care of it. And we've been horrible and to our of each planet. other. All, and all of, of that. each yeah. other. Yeah, we bring, bring we can bring out the best in each other and um and uh to uh to 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 not just have friends who share our beliefs, but to deliberately seek out uh people with different religious beliefs, different cultures, different foods, go traveling you know, and, um, and, and be the best we can be. Absolutely. And with that, you have the final words. I mean, I'm just, uh, I'm just very grateful for this wonderful work that you've done. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Hassan. I think if there was one thing I wanted people to take away, it would be to really believe that there is more um, untapped, unseen, um, unrecognized, but if we focus our intention that we will find it, then I really believe that in every situation we have in life, good or bad, there is wonder there. Yes, exactly. So thank you again. And um, uh, hope we can meet at some point in the real world, uh, not just digitally and uh, 
and 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 please if you're listening to this uh get the book and we're going to do the not only the podcast but embed the video on my blog on freedomofmind.com and we'll have additional links uh and uh and thank you monica thank you so much you have a great day okay thank you That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at CultExpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at IGOTOUT.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.